Good afternoon again, church. I would ask if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, you don't have to go very far because it's on page 10. And our text for this morning is going to be verses 1 to 9, an account that's probably very familiar to most of us, the Tower of Babel. And as I made mention a few weeks ago, in our study in Genesis chapter 4 of the story of Cain and Abel, I love the study of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, because in this wonderful first book of the Bible, we have so many of the core doctrines of our faith being presented to us. And for those of us who are Christians, Genesis provides for us a great starting point for the development of our worldview. Now, what do we mean when we speak of a worldview? Well, simply put, a worldview is the way that a person sees the world around them. And everyone has a worldview, whether they know it or not. Now, some people will give more thought to it than others, but at any given point in a person's life, there are going to be deep questions about life that people have and they're seeking answers to these questions. But all worldviews must be able to answer four basic questions. There can be certainly other questions involved, but these four basic questions are something that every worldview has to be able to answer. And the first one is a question of origins. Where do I come from? Second is a question of destiny. Where am I going? Third, a question of purpose. Why are we here? And lastly, a question of morality. How is it that we should live? What is right and what is wrong? Now, I'm not going to leave you in suspense. I'm going to tell you right on the forefront of this message that Christianity is the only belief system that can answer these four questions logically, completely, and coherently. And Christianity, when properly understood and applied, makes total sense. But most importantly, it's true. Unfortunately, though, we know that since the fall in Genesis 3, a biblical worldview is not the predominant view in this world. There have been countless other worldviews throughout history that have competed for supremacy. And although each may have a measure of truth to them, None can fully satisfy the answer to the four basic questions. And actually what ends up happening is that a lot of these competing worldviews where they might be speaking a little bit of truth usually are actually borrowing from the Christian worldview anyway. But I think we all understand that within the last hundred years or so that the worldview that has dominated our culture is the materialistic view of evolution. Now, we've spent a lot of times over the years in this church in different settings dissecting all of the problems with evolution. But the sad reality is that sinful man who is in rebellion to God will believe anything and everything that stands in opposition to the Bible. Now, our text today is going to deal with one of the many problems that evolution has. A question that is often overlooked, yet nonetheless poses a problem for the evolutionist in terms of origins. 
And that question is, where did all of the world's languages come from? Now, there are people trying to study and trying to find out the answer to this. In fact, at the University of Reading in the United Kingdom, there's a professor by the name of Mark Pagel. And he has led a team in searching for an evolutionary explanation for our many languages. He says, and I quote, Apes around the world can understand each other, so why do intellectually superior humans have around 7,000 distinct languages? Now, the latest estimate that we have is that there is 6,912 known languages in the world. That's the latest current um, number. Now, that could easily change and it could easily be increased. We know that from our own experiences, the Jabellos, who serve not only the, the parents, but the son and, and daughter-in-law serve in Papua New Guinea. And from our understanding of what they've told us is that within each tribal group, when sometimes just the next town or the next village over, that there are different languages being spoken or dialects being spoken. So there perhaps are unreached people group of the world that, the, that we've never been around or encountered that might speak another language. So that, that number in of itself may increase. But as of now, there's close to 7,000 known languages in the world right now. This gentleman goes on to say, why would humans evolve a system of communication that prevents them from communicating with other members of the same species? He freely admits that human languages fly in the face of evolutionary ideas, and that the linguistic history is an evolutionary paradox because as humans evolve, they are supposed to become more advanced. Yet the presence of so many languages actually slows down the movement of ideas, of technology, and even of people groups. Now ironically, Pagel finds that the best explanation that he can come up with is actually the biblical account found in Genesis 11. But because he does not believe in the Bible, he can't accept it as true, and therefore he continues his search. Now before we look to our text this morning, or this afternoon I should say, I just want to present some facts that I found to be fascinating. In the study of languages known as linguistics, there is a grouping that is done to create languages that are related in order to construct what is known as a proto-language or simply a whole family tree of languages. 449 of the world's languages fall into the category known as Indo-European language family. English, Spanish, Russian are part of this family and this entire group represents 45% of the known world. This is known as the Proto-Indo-European, and it is the most common in the world. And although each one of these languages is different, we understand that there's differences between English and Spanish and Russian, but what can happen is that we're able to trace it back to one single source of an original language from this group. The second most widely spoken language is the Sino-Tibetan group, which includes various the Chinese dialects, and 403 additional distinct languages. 22% of the world's population speak these, and again, these are able to be traced back to a single source. Now, if I'm doing my math correct, that leaves us with 33% of the world. And the rest of the world, the rest of the 33%, fall into one of 92 different language families. Now, this is interesting, though. 
because there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that all of these language families have one original source. So whereas the individual family groups can be traced back to original source, all of these family groups that are out there cannot be tra traced back to original source. So there is no naturalistic explanation for the many different languages. And since there isn't, there must be another cause. And that leads us to our text for today. Genesis chapter 11, and we'll begin by looking at verse 1 and 2. Where we read, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now in Genesis chapter 11, we find ourselves in the period after the great worldwide flood, found in chapters 7 and 8. And in trying to put a timeline together for this event, it's important that we reference the previous chapter, chapter 10, where we see the list of the table of nations. And chapter 10 describes for us the genealogy of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. And how through these men, the earth was repopulated and divided into nations, forming the ethnic lines after the flood. Now many biblical scholars see chapter 11 coming either before or certainly within the timeline of chapter 10 from a chronological standpoint. And the reason for this is that if you were to look at chapter 10 verse 25, we're introduced to a man by the name of Peleg. And we are told that in his days the earth was divided, which would make sense in light of what we are going to see in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 11. And if this is indeed the case, then the event that we're going to look at of the Tower of Babel is approximately 100 years after the flood. So all in total, when we look at these two chapters, it's safe to say that the reading of chapter 10 tells us what happened, and chapter 11 tells us why it happened. But as we look specifically to the text in verse 1, we're told that all of the inhabitants of this post-flood world spoke the same language. Literally, in the original language, it's the same lip. And this is going to set the backdrop for what's going to transpire. In verse 2, this rather large group of people are traveling east from their location, and they decide that they're going to settle in this land of Shinar. And again, looking closely at chapter 10, we see that Shinar was a land that had many cities in it. Among them was one city known as Babel, which is an early name for the city of Babylon, which we're going to see much later on in Scripture is a prominent city and a city that is going to be one of the enemies of the nation of Israel. Now, if you're thinking from your own geographical mind and trying to figure and picture where this is, what we're talking about here would be what's known as the modern day of Iraq. So that's what we're dealing with here as far as geographical locations. Now it also appears, and I say appears, that this people group may have had a leader. And his name is Nimrod. And he is known as a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now when we're thinking about Nimrod, there is much speculation about him that we see in extra-biblical literature. The scriptures itself speaks a little bit about him, but much of what we know from him is extra-biblical. And again, so it's hard to decipher what's true and what's not. Initially, he's known as a mighty hunter before the Lord. And if you look at some of the extra, again, Jewish literature, 
They, they talk about him as being a man who initially, he was a great stature, mighty before the Lord, and it sounds as though he was a man who perhaps at first was not in rebellion to God. He's a great-grandson of Noah, and perhaps at first he might be walking with the Lord. But at some point, he seems to be a man who becomes very prideful and arrogant, and then he ends up becoming known as a man who's a rebel. He's a rebel. He's known as one who made all the people rebellious against God. Again, this is according to Jewish literature. And, it's here, and it appears that he may be one of the leaders of this group of people, if not the leader. But now we see a problem, though, is starting to arise as we get into verses 3 and 4. And again, we see it here more clearly. In verse 3 it says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. In verse 4 it says, They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now there is a lot to unpack in these two verses. A couple things to notice on the onset is that contrary to popular belief, ancient man was indeed quite sophisticated. These people were creative in their building projects and their understanding of engineering and construction was extensive. We also see that this, that this was the case in the descendants of Cain in chapter 4 when we looked at that chapter. That early man was not as primitive as we'd like to think that they were. Even though man has fallen, he still has, is made in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, he has the ability to some degree and to create and to design. So contrary, again, to the popular belief that early man is a bunch of cavemen walking with their knuckles dragging on the ground, that is not indeed what is happening here. These men actually were very, very competent in the things that they do, particularly in the field of construction. Secondly, we see that the structure or tower that was being built here is what is known in the ancient world to be a ziggurat. Now a ziggurat was a temple tower, again, similar to a pyramid, and it was built in successive stages that had outdoor staircases. And as these things, they would go higher and higher to a shrine at the top of this tower. So the idea is that they were either trying to bring God down or they were trying to attain and reach the level of God. But it wasn't the God of the Bible, typically, that these things were built for. These were pagan, pagan uh, structures and they were built for pagan religious purposes. There is no evidence whatsoever that they were used for the worship of the real true God. But nonetheless, these towers are built and we have archaeological evidence in order and throughout history that has examples of this so that we know that these structures did exist. But there's some problems. Some real big problems, though, that we see in these verses. One major problem is that the people are in clear violation of God's command. Beginning at the end of verse 2, where we're told that they settled in Shinar, and then here in verse 4 of their statement of not wanting to be scattered over the, court of the face of the earth, these people are disobeying the command that God gave to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9-1, when he had told them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was a command that was given, and it was a command that was given down to the subsequent generations, and yet here they are in violation of it. Remember, when God gives us a command, it's not a suggestion. He is giving us a command in order for us to obey it. And it is clear at this point that God did not intend for this post-flood people to settle in one place. 
but yet at the same that yet this is what they are trying to attempt to do at this very moment but their sin here is not just a misunderstanding it's willful rebellion against God because we see it in the pride and the arrogance that's displayed I'm going to read the verse again, verse 4, and you'll just see, I'm going to highlight it when you see perhaps the way that they're speaking here. It says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Their desire is to build a tower to exalt themselves and not to exalt God. Men here was the center and they want to determine their destiny apart from God. And this is amazing because this event is only about a hundred years after the flood that God had brought upon the world to destroy sinful mankind. And you would think that they would have learned, but sad to say there is really nothing new when it comes to man's depravity. And all throughout the Bible, even until today, man decides to shake his puny fist in rebellion against God. It's been this way, this is the theme throughout history. When we look at Psalm 2, Psalm 2 speaks to this. We see in Psalm 2, it tells us, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their feathers apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. So we see that it's nothing new. So not only the kingdoms of the world, but even individual people. I remember reading a, a thing and, and listening to something in regards to Adolf Hitler, where it was said of Adolf Hitler that during his time and his reign in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, that in his own diary that he made an entry one day where he said that he was making a covenant with the devil. And here he was with a covenant with the devil that he decided that he wanted to do, and that his Third Reich... Right, his kingdom that he was going to have on the earth was going to rule over the earth for a thousand years. So we see it from men like that. We see it from a guy that perhaps most of us, again, familiar that, that in this room, that old enough to remember back in 1995, the, the Oklahoma City bombing that occurred when the Alfred Murrow Federal Building was destroyed and 160-something people were killed. And the perpetrator of that crime was a man by the name of Timothy McVeigh. And here, Timothy McVeigh, was in such defiance because when they would interview him and they would speak to him and they would say, well, what do you think about what you have done? And, and he would talk about, well, what if there's an afterlife? Well, what do you think? Now, he didn't believe in an afterlife, but he said, even if there is an afterlife, he goes, I'll just be a good soldier and I'll improvise, adapt, and overcome. And here he was, a man that went to the death chamber, who was executed for his crimes, and when he went to the death chamber, he remained unrepentant to the end. So much so that as they were putting him on the table and they were putting the needle into his arm and ready to kill him and they asked if he had any last words, he sat there stoically and said nothing. But he simply had the poem in Viticus read and his final statements were, I am master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Could you imagine entering into eternity with those being the last words that you would have and just staying there and being defiant until the end? So there's nothing really new in history. It happens on the kingdom level, it happens on individual levels. But here's the great irony in them wanting to make a name for themselves. God actually does honor the name of those who honor Him. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, the Lord says, For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. In John 12, 26, Jesus says, 
If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we can actually have our name, make a name for ourselves and be honored in a sense when we are living in faith and obedience to God. We think again of all the people that are in the scriptures, all the heroes of the faith who were memorialized forever because of their faith and because of their trust in the Lord. They weren't looking out for their own interests. They were looking to promote the ways and to promote the Lord. But again, as if this was not bad enough, we see another possible reason for the building of the tower from extra-biblical literature. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, writing in Antiquities of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 4, he mentions this gentleman we spoke of by the name of Nimrod again. And he said again, as Nimrod appears to be the leader of this group, Nimrod had stated, again according to this, this Jewish literature, that he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again. For he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach, and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying their forefathers. So in addition to building a name for themselves, the motive for building the tower was to protect humanity from another flood. And how foolish is that? How foolish is that to think of the power of the Lord and knowing what the Lord had done, again, very close to the flood, knowing full well from talking perhaps to Noah or even to Noah's sons of knowing what indeed had happened because they had seen it and to think that you would have the audacity to believe that you could build a tower that God was not going to be able to destroy or God was not going to be able to control. It reminds me of when they built the Titanic and it was said of the Titanic, they said that the ship that God couldn't sink and then on its maiden voyage, there it went. But here we have, this is the way that man is thinking. Josephus goes on to say that Nimrod persuaded his followers to not ascribe their happiness to God as if it were through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was through their own courage that procured their happiness. Now keep in mind, these are people who do not deny the existence of God. They believe in him. Rather, what they're saying, though, is that they will not have God to rule over them. And nothing has changed. It's no wonder when that God says in Genesis 8.21 that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So now we see the problem, we see what's going on. And up until this point, God is silent. But he's not unaware, and God is about to act. In the first four verses, right, we saw the work of sinful man in rebellion to God. In verses 5 to 9, we now see the response of the Lord. <clears throat> in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. In verse 6, it says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. The Lord had allowed their actions up until this point, but in his perfect timing, he now acts to intervene. First we see it says, the Lord comes down. Now this is anthropomorphic language that's being used. And what I mean by that is language, human language used to describe God. God is not caught by surprise by their actions, nor is he powerless to stop it. Those who might say that, and the critics of the Bible will say that, or even sometimes people in uh, varying different denominations would argue that he's not capable of doing certain things. 
we understand very quickly that that argument falls flat when you consider what the Bible talks about. And the fact that if God can count the number of the stars and calls them by name, according to Psalm 147.4, or just the simple fact that he created the entire universe from nothing by his spoken word, we know that he's not powerless. And we, saw that we certainly know that he's not without knowledge in regards to this. Rather, when it says that the Lord comes down, it speaks to his intimate involvement with his creation. And this happens in so many other places in the scriptures. A couple of examples just from the chapters we're looking at here. In Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis 18.21, we see that we're told that the Lord comes down to see the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the very next book, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, speaking to Moses, we're told that the Lord comes down to rescue Israel from the power of Egypt. In Exodus 19.11, the Lord came down to Mount Sinai to deliver to Moses the Ten Commandments. The Lord's involvement with his creation is in direct contrast to what so, some have called the predominant religion of our day. Now we know that many people claim to be Christian or they adhere to some other type of faith. And now we live in a day and age where many people, when it comes to the question of what is your religion, most people, a lot of people now are, are willing to say none, checking off the, the category of none. And again, there is merit to every one of these things. But I think that the religion of most of the world, when it really boiled down to it, and certainly the religion of America, is what has become to be called moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's a term that's been developed that some people have called it. And I think, quite honestly, that really kind of speaks true to what most people probably fall into. If you're not a true Christian or a true adherent to most faith, even people that sometimes are, they fall into that category. And what do we mean by that? Well, moralistic is... We like the idea of like, something telling me a little bit of a right and wrong. But we also like the idea of the right and wrong being something that we want it to be. So the moralism really is not something to an external source. Sometimes it's an internal thing. The therapeutic is just our society in America in a nutshell. We just want people to tell us to feel good about ourselves, to affirm us in our sin, not to confront us in anything. We just want to be told that everything's going to be okay. We don't deal with sin. We don't deal with anything like that. Just pat me on the back and just say nice things to me and, and be on our way. And the last part is deism. I think most people at the end of the day, even an atheist, will probably acknowledge that there probably is a God somewhere. But a deist is someone who believes that God is not intimately involved in creation. A deist is someone that the old analogy was, is to, you wind up the clock and then you put the clock off the side and you go away. So that, yes, there could be a God, but he's not, he's not engaged He's, he's an absentee landlord, and he's on his own doing his own thing. And we only need him and call upon him when we want to. So in many ways, most people live like practical atheists. And I think that this would probably be the religion of, of what most people would have. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who is intimately involved. The God of the Bible is one who is the one who sets the law. He's the one that sets the standard. And he's the one that addresses and deals with sin. In verse 6, though, it kind of represents a commentary for us as God provides a description of what's going on. The people were truly a united nation, yet they served themselves as a rebellious people. And when God says that nothing will be impossible for them, He's certainly not saying that they pose a legitimate threat to His sovereign purposes. But rather, in some ways, He's actually showing mercy to them. Because he knows full well that their unification will only lead to unchecked evil and more chaos. He knows that if they stay together in their current situation and the things that they're going to do, 
that things are just going to get worse. So he's not worried about the threat to himself because there is no threat. There never has been and there never will be a threat to God. But he is concerned about his creation in this sense. And he's actually protecting them by what he's going to do. So God chooses to act. In verses 7 and 8, we see it says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. In verse 7, we see another reference here in Genesis to the doctrine of the Trinity. In the words, let us, indicating once again a plurality similar to what we see in Genesis 1.26 during creation when God says, let us make man in our image and likeness. And here God acting, he confuses their language. In doing so, God as he often does is bringing judgment and mercy at the same time. Judgment in that he stops their plans by making their life more difficult. And now they're unable to communicate with one another. And their false sense of security of being a united people was shattered. I just think about, imagine the chaos that must have existed. I don't know how it happened if they woke up one morning and they were looking at one another and says, hey Mike, pass me the hammer. And now Mike doesn't understand what I'm saying. Wherever else that might have happened and all of a sudden, wow. In an instant notice, they had perfect communication with one another, understood each other well, and now they don't understand one another. Imagine how amazingly and confusing that must have been. And you wonder in some ways where they continuously shaking their fist at God, like, oh, you got us again, God. But that's judgment. But at the same time, there's mercy involved. First, and that he didn't wipe them out completely. Now, he said he wasn't going to do that with a worldwide flood, but he would have been completely justified in wiping them out for their rebellion against him at this moment, but he doesn't. So there's mercy there. And secondly, the confusion of tongues actually stops the apostasy from growing. Because the apostasy at this moment is really growing. It's, and it's getting out of hand. By dividing them and then spreading them out across the world, he's preventing them from actually doing it together. And I really think this is amazing. Again, think back to the beginning of this message. I mentioned... There has been no explanation or evidence that linguists have been able to come up with to explain the original sources of the languages. Well, there is. Genesis 11.7. It's a supernatural explanation and not a natural one. So until one comes to accept this truth, all other searches will lead to dead ends. And that is why we will reiterate over and over again in this church that the acceptance of the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis is foundational and essential to a proper Christian worldview. If we neglect its truth or compromise it in any way, we're leaving ourselves open to all types of error. We cannot treat the scriptures as an a la carte thing. We can't say, I like this, I don't like that, I'm going to take this out, I'm going to take that out. I said earlier at the earlier service, I mentioned the Thomas Jefferson Bible. I believe it's at the Smithsonian Institute, one of the, 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 the Smithsonian Institute of American History, with Thomas Jefferson, he was a deist, and he went through the scriptures, and there was a lot of things he didn't like. So he took out all the supernatural things, he took out all the different hard sayings, he left a shell of what it was, of just like, you know, nice platitudes and whatnot. That's not the scriptures. Not the scriptures. What it was is Thomas Jefferson was making a god out of his own, out of his own, his own image and likeness, somebody that suited him. It might, be, it might as well just call it the Jefferson Bible devoted to him, because it had nothing to do with anything else. 
So we want to be guarded against that. Our text of this account closes with verse 9. And it serves as kind of a recap to what transpires in the first eight verses. In verse 9, we see it says, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. We see that the tower here is given the name Babel, and the word Babel actually means confusion. Understandably so, given what happened here. We also see here that the Lord enforced his own command of Genesis 9-1, where he scatters the people over the face of the earth. Again, this is going to be better explained for us in chapter 10, the previous chapter, as we see in that chapter the descendants of the three sons of Noah move around the earth. And from what we know from history, uh, Japheth, um, was, his descendants were going to be those who were going to populate Europe and Asia. The descendants of Ham were going to be those who would go into Egypt, into the land of Canaan, and also into Africa. And Shem were going to be, the descendants were going to be ones who would spread out through the Middle East. Also what we understand here from this account is that Babel represents the first organized idolatrous religious system in the world. By them gathering together to do what it is that they did, it really was their, the first of the world's systems, organized. There had obviously been rebellion against God before this, but this is the first organized one, done at a massive level. And it may have been the first, but we know it certainly wasn't the last. And I think one thing we can also take away from this account is that all who come against God in rebellion will be defeated. There are no surprise upsets. Now you turn on the TV sometime and you see a, a sports team and one team is a severe underdog and the odds are against them and they end up pulling an upset and they beat the better team. That will never, ever, ever happen with God. God is completely undefeated, 100% record, 100% of the time. Nothing can come against him. As R.C. Sproul said, there is not one maverick molecule in the universe that's running around just thwarting his plans. God is in complete control at all times. Nothing is going to defeat him. Nothing is going to thwart his purposes. And the foolishness idea, the foolish of us being able to think that we can, is really is unbelievable. So I think we have to ask ourselves, is there an area in our life where we are in rebellion to God? Now if you are here today or if someone's listening to this message, and if you are not a believer, then ultimately, yes, you're in ultimate rebellion against God because you are not trusting and the way that he had made and the provision that he's made in order for you to be saved. And that is a serious issue that needs to be resolved. I mean, that's the greatest issue of life. But for those of us who are Christians, we have to ask ourselves, are we holding on to some type of sin that we know that we need to repent of and to be rid of, but yet it's a sin that perhaps we just like? It's one of those things that Jerry Bridges would call, perhaps it's one of those respectable sins. Not respectable because it is, but respectable because we don't think it's such a big deal. What's one of those things that perhaps it's, well, you know what, I'm, just, I'm still struggling with this, but maybe my struggle is not as great as it should be. Maybe my struggle is more just me giving into it more often than I should. So those are things that we have to ask ourselves. We don't want to be in rebellion to God. Now as we close today, I want to bring us back to another point that was made earlier, and that is in regards to the intervention of God with his creation. 
Throughout history, God has raised up some great men to serve his people during different periods. Men like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David come to mind, and there are certainly many others. Yet despite how faithful they were, all were flawed and unable to consistently and certainly not perfectly lead God's people. As we looked at today's count, we may mention that the event of the Tower of Babel probably occurred approximately 100 years after the flood. That means that Noah was alive at this time. Because according to Genesis 9.28, he lived 350 years after the flood. In fact, he would be the oldest living person on the planet at this time. Now, I think it would be safe to assume that he had no part in what was happening here. Yet his voice, his example, or his leadership was not enough to stop what was going on. The search, we know, for earthly saviors is ultimately futile. But thanks be to God, he is fully aware of this. And it was not part of his eternal plan that the redemption of the world would be left to, create, to a created being. Rather, God's plan did involve a man, but he was no ordinary man. He was the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who was not only fully man, he was fully God. And it would be Jesus who would come down from heaven in a supernatural way, being born of a virgin, then living a perfect life on the earth, fulfilling all the requirements of God's law. And then again, according to this perfect plan, he would suffer and die on a cross, being punished for the sins of his people, so that those who repent of their sins and believe in him by grace through faith can be forgiven and adopted into the family of God. And then this group of redeemed people will form the perfect united nation, so to speak, the church, with the perfect leader, the Prince of Peace. So today and every day, let us not look to earthly structures for safety or for them to be our homes, but rather let us be like Abraham, who it is said of in Hebrews 11.10, that he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you once again for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be gathered together as your people and to open up your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the precious truth that is found in Genesis chapter 11. I thank you that it answers so many questions that we have. And I thank you that it is a great reminder to us of the futility of rebellion against you. And we ask, oh God, that you would just help us, Lord God, to be pleasing in your sight and to look and to search our own hearts to find those areas, Lord, where we need to repent of, those areas that we need to get rid of. And I pray that as we do so, Lord, that we would just increase, Lord, our love for you and increase our faith and just guide us, Lord, in, in all things that we would need to do, Lord, as we live our earthly lives here. May we do so, Lord, to your glory. And Father, we thank you and just give you all the praise now. In Jesus' name, amen.